Let's pray. May your Holy Spirit rest upon us and melt away our anxiety and fear of any who are tempted to name, any tempted, who we are tempted to name as other or even as our enemy. May our hearts and minds be open to the heart and mind of Christ as we hear your word proclaimed this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, fear, I believe, is one of the biggest contributors to economic, racial, and religious divides. Sadly, many of us have gained most of our knowledge of the poor, uh, people of a different race than our own, and those with different religious backgrounds uh, from second or third hand reports uh, on the news or from uh, stereotypes that we've heard along the way. When we group people into categories, it is easy to remain divided from our neighbors and see them as the other at best and as enemies at worst. Throughout history, the other has frightened us and kept us divided. When Jesus came into the world, he, though, came to save all of the world, and he refused to divide and separate people the way that we often do. We prefer judging and separating people and things in either-or terms, using terms like good and evil, black and white, rich and poor, right and wrong. And of course, we like to be the ones judging, because when we judge, we set the criteria and can ensure that we are on the right side. Jesus, however, instead chose the way of encounter. He did not build walls to divide, but instead chose to break down barriers between people. He chose to liberate people from all that would, have, that would divide us and established a new ethic of love for all who God created. But humans now and or humans then and humans now, just like all of us, still try to pick and choose which people to love and choose to build up walls and keep our fears of the other, uh, to keep our fears of the other at bay, without re recognizing fully what Jesus said in Matthew 25, and trusting that it is in encountering the other that we get to know God most fully. In a more and more diverse religious landscape in America, I also do believe that fear has driven many Christians even more toward judgment of those who believe differently than they do. We think that if we are right in our understanding of salvation in Christ, everyone else obviously must be wrong. And we all know right people go to heaven and wrong people go to hell. And in fact, we have a scripture that Jerry just read from John 14, 6. Uh, the second part, to prove it. And since we are rarely as gracious as God is with us, with one another, we build up walls in our minds. Today I'd like to explore this passage in the hope that together we might find a way to begin to remove our fear of the other by trusting in God's never-ending love and grace and move toward a more constructive relationship with persons from other faiths. John 14, 6, again, reads as follows. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, the first part of this 
scripture passage is one of the most popular in all of the Bible. It may be one of your favorites too. I know it's one of mine. I am the way and the truth and the life. This phrase is quite beautiful. And it connects Jesus as the essence and source of all these things that at our deepest levels we all long for. However, then you get to the second part of this verse or this passage. No one comes to the Father except through me. And this can cause us some difficulty because it is often used by some Christians to judge and condemn to hell people uh, of other religions and anyone else who does not profess Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. I would say that this verse has been probably brought to me uh, by people in the congregations that I've served over the last 15 years, uh, probably more than any other. And usually, uh, when people come to me, it's out of deep care for um, a friend or a co-worker who also happens to be of a different faith. Typically, the conversation begins with that person sharing with me about how their friend is a good person, how they treat people right, how they have integrity, how they serve their community, how they're hardworking. And they say, you know, they're just as faithful, maybe even more faithful than I am. And they wish God would be as generous with them as they want to be with their friend. They wonder and then they ask the question, how could God possibly send them, Joe, Susie, Tom, to hell? Well, this question makes clear that they have interpreted this scripture in a very particular way. So as we begin today, I want us to remember the necessity of interpretation. What we have to do with this and any difficult scripture passage is carefully interpret it. And now I realize that the word interpretation when re referring and talking about the Bible for some of you is a red flag and you already are getting a little bit nervous. I'm not naive to think that that isn't the case. But I do believe, as I've talked to our confirmands about in the past, that you know, when you read a scripture passage at one time in your life, maybe when you're a child, uh, it speaks to you in one way. And then as you get a little bit older, you read that same passage. The words are exactly the same on the page. And God speaks truth in a new way to you. And I believe that's because the Bible is a living book, that the Holy Spirit breathes life into the text always. And where we are in our life affects how we interpret. Um, the circumstances of life um, make us interpret things differently. Think about that as you've gone through your life and certain things have happened to you or happened to people you know and how you've seen scriptures in different ways. And then I think also uh, our own spiritual state of mind affects how we interpret scripture. This idea that the Bible is a living book also cautions us against being strict literalists when it comes to reading any Bible text. 
We cannot forget that throughout history, sacred texts have always required interpretation. The work of biblical scholars, our Christian tradition, our own experience and prayer all help us to begin to interpret well. But we must always rely on the Holy Spirit to help guide us beyond just the words on the page to the meaning that God is conveying with the words and interpret them through the lens of God's life-giving, light-bringing, and love-sharing desire to bring all things together. In Adam Hamilton's book, Making Sense of the Bible, which I think our Thursday uh, morning Elderberry's Bible story uh, Bible study read a year or so ago. Uh, he discusses two ways of interpreting our scripture for today. He writes, the first is to believe that Jesus intended to make a statement about the eternal fate of non-Christians, as if to say, no one who has not accepted me as their personal Lord and Savior will come to my Father. They will be eternally separated from him. This is how many Christians understand this second part of this uh, scripture reading, or how they have been taught to understand it. And it's also the way that most of the people that have come to me to talk about it, uh, the place where they have been uh, when they've been worried about uh, their non-Christian friends and coworkers. This is not, however, the only interpretation of this scripture. Hamilton continues, the second way of understanding Jesus' words in this verse is no one comes to my Father except through my saving work. Notice the difference. In the first case, the emphasis is on what an individual does, their decision to receive Christ. No one comes to the Father unless they accept me. In the second way of interpreting the text, the emphasis is on what Jesus does to save the world. No one comes to the Father except by my saving work. To help us decide between these two interpretations, we need to remember the context of this passage in the Bible. Jesus speaks these words just hours before being arrested and tried. The next day, he will be crucified. John is clear that on the cross, Jesus brings about salvation of the whole world. And in this context, it seems likely that Jesus is referring to what he does to save the world. The second interpretation of John 14, 6b. Rather than what humans do to receive salvation. Salvation comes as a pure gift of God's grace. I believe this verse... Or this view is much more generous and in line with God's desire to reconcile all creation to himself. So that leads us back to the fate of non-Christian people, and especially those who we most frequently encounter in our communities, our Muslim and Jewish neighbors. There are three main schools of thought on this topic, too. The first is universalism, and this uh, way of thinking means that God will not let anyone be lost, that uh, everyone will be saved. This view may seem attractive until you start to think about uh, truly evil people like Hitler, for example, or those who earnestly and persistently, in good faith, reject God throughout their whole life. 
I do not believe God overthrows our ability to exercise our free will in this rejection or that God will force salvation on anyone, although it is offered as a gift to all people. Based on these two realities, I think that we must reject the view that everyone has, everyone goes to heaven. The next school of thought is exclusivism or particularism. This way of thinking says that the only those who have personally accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior will be saved and go to heaven. God offers this gift freely to all, but it must be accepted to be uh, validated or to be at work in your life. Sometimes there are a few exceptions given uh, with this way of thinking for people uh, who have not reached an age of accountability where they can claim Jesus for themselves, uh, for those with cognitive challenges, or those who live somewhere where they've never heard uh, the gospel proclaimed to them. But everyone else is sent to hell, including the faithful of all other religions. Then the third school of thought is Christian inclusivism, which affirms that Jesus indeed is the way and the truth and the life, and he is the source of salvation. Now be sure you hear that part, because when you look at this scripture like we're doing today, the tendency is always to walk out of here and tell somebody that your pastor does not believe that Jesus is the way to salvation. That is not what I am saying, because I fully believe that that is the case, that Jesus Christ is Lord and is the source of our salvation. His death on the cross was for the sins of the whole world. And therefore, God can give the gift of salvation to anyone he chooses based on whatever criteria he chooses. Because God is God, and if God is God, we are not. And if you don't realize that, turn to your neighbor, and I'm sure they'll be happy to enlighten you. Especially if they are your spouse, or teenage son or daughter. It is possible, according to this view, for God to give the gift of salvation to those who sought to love and serve God, even if they never heard the gospel or fully understood or accepted it. In this view, it is clear that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world and his salvation is given by God as God chooses. Christian inclusivism allows space for God to look at the heart and earnest faith of those who follow other religions and see a desire to know the way, the truth, and the life, and to genuinely love their neighbor. The gospel of Jesus teaches us that salvation is a gift given by God and that we can do nothing to earn salvation. We can merely trust in it. This inclusivist view reminds us of the, God, of the good news that we are all saved by God's initiative. Because of God's love, God's righteousness, and God's mercy. Amy Jill Levine, who is a university professor of New Testament and Jewish studies at Vanderbilt Divinity School, uh, who also happens to be Jewish, I once heard uh, at a festival of homiletics, and homiletics is for preachers and stuff, but it's a fancy word for preaching. Anyway, speak and she told this story she said at the end of a very long life and happy life I die and find myself at the gates of heaven and they are indeed 
pearly. I'm encouraged by this fact because the word pearly in Greek is margarita. So I'm pretty excited because it sounds like a pretty fun place to be. Standing at the pearly gates, I see Peter, and as a historian, I'm very pleased because I have some questions for him. First question, where is your wife, Peter? Jesus heals your mother-in-law in in the Bible, but where's your wife in all of this? Or where in the heck did you go in the middle of Acts where you just kind of disappeared? Peter says, look, lady. I'm on duty right now. I'll talk to you about that after dinner. Keep this line of moving. You can pick up your halo, your harp, and your golden slippers at the next table. I say fine. And as I am collecting my divine swag bag, I notice behind me a man who is absolutely going apoplectic. He is losing his mind. He says, exasperated, Peter! Don't you know she can't possibly get in? Because Jesus said that no one comes to the Father except through me, and she's a Jew. Peter huffs. Oi, another one. Wait here. So I, of course, stop to wait. In a couple of minutes, Peter returns with an olive-complected man with a rather large nose, dark curly hair, who looked very similar to my husband, except this man happens to have holes in the palms of his hands. Peter then says, boss, we have another one. And Jesus looks at the man and stares at him in the eyes and asks, sir, what seems to be the problem here? The man, somewhat stunned by the whole thing, says, Jesus, I've been a faithful follower of yours my whole life. And I took seriously what you said when you said I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through you. And I just can't understand how this woman can possibly get in. Jesus then replies, oh yes, it's true the Gospel of John does have me saying this. But the Gospel of Matthew also speaks of the requirements of this moment and says, Did you provide food for the hungry? Did you provide clothes for the naked? Did you visit people in prison? Did you make sure this little one had a cup of cold water to drink when they were thirsty? It seems to me that she has done all of that. It may be that nobody gets to heaven but by me. But I say she gets in. You want to argue? And then she said the last thing she remembered seeing was Jesus handing the poor guy a tissue to help extricate the log from his eye. She then finishes the story by reminding us if One wants to claim that Jesus is the gatekeeper. Let him, in fact, be the gatekeeper. That's not the role of the individual Christian. The verdict is not in until somebody up there makes it so. 
Father Greg Boyle also reminds us that God seems to be an unwilling participant in our efforts to pigeonhole him. No matter how we interpret John 14.6, the second half of this verse, I believe Christ's command to love God and our neighbor without exclusion requires that we treat those of other religions with dignity, with respect, and with love. Our witness to Christ is diminished when we share and demonstrate our faith through actions in ways that are disrespectful, arrogant, insulting, hurtful, or rude. We might even be surprised, just like we are when we've uh, had a couple times a year on Thursday worship where we meet with some of our brothers and sisters, our Muslim brothers and sisters, and have discussion and build friendships. We might be, dis might be surprised when we encounter those of different faiths and build relationships with them, that our own faith is deepened and we learn, is deepened when we learn about other religions. I believe that God will judge those of other faiths who earnestly seek to know, love, and follow God in the ways that they are taught. This maintains both integrity, both that salvation is by and through Christ, and that it is received by faith. I believe there is indeed a wideness in God's mercy, as the old hymn says, and it is a relief to me that I can simply let God be God when it comes to salvation. However, I know this is not a completely satisfying answer for some of you who are sitting here this morning. You may wonder, then why should we even bother to share our Christian faith if God can just save anyone for any reason? And why would Jesus instruct his disciples to go and make other disciples? Well, first, I hope that when we share and demonstrate our faith in Christ, it is not just to help people keep their behinds out of the fire. Because we are not just saved from something by Christ, but we are also saved for something by Christ. We share Christ because we believe in him that God has revealed himself to us completely. And in him, God provides for us a new way of living that combats all that would divide us from one another, including fear. 1 John 4, 18 to 21 reminds us, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. We love because he first loved us. Those who say I love God and hate their brothers or sisters are liars. For those who do not love a brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. The commandment we have from him is this. Those who love God must love their brothers and sisters too. And no matter what translation of this verse you use, go to the bookstore and verify it if you want. There is not a little star at the end of this passage with a list of exclusions. In Jesus, we receive a new ethic of love which removes our fears and allows for peace and the abundant life that God desires to flourish for all his children who he has created. Jesus wants his followers to bear witness to this truth and to be agents of his light and love in a hurting world. 
as we look toward encountering those of different faiths, I want to leave you with a quote and a vision. First, the quote. In 1985, Pope John Paul II delivered a speech to over 80,000 Muslims in Casablanca. He said, with humility, we believe in the same God, the one God, the living God who created the world. In a world which desires unity and peace, but experiences a thousand tensions and conflicts, should not believers favor friendship between the peoples who form one single community on earth? Dialogue between Christians and Muslims is today more urgent than ever. It flows from fidelity to God. Sometimes in the past, we have opposed and even exhausted each other in polemics and in wars. I believe that today God invites us to change old practices. We must respect each other and we must stimulate each other in good works on the path to righteousness. There is much that the faithful, of, faithful people of different faiths share in common. And when we seek to build relationships with one another, we begin to recognize our bond and a true desire for peace and service to the needy in seeking freedom for the oppressed and justice for all. And now for the vision. Again, from Amy Jill Levine, once she shared this following vision that she had while she was traveling in California. She found herself out in the desert and she saw two uh, parallel train tracks running out into the distance. And as she stood there um, and she took the close view, she looked at before her and the paths were down the road, staying separated. And then she turned around and looked the back way and the same was true. But then she lifted her head up towards the horizon. And there she saw something different. The tracks had come together and there was not calamity as if the two trains had collided, but instead on the horizon, the trains running on both tracks pulled into the same station. In the words of prophet Zechariah, the Lord shall be the king over all the earth and on that day we will all be one. May it be so to the glory of Christ, our Lord, the Savior of the world. Amen.